hearts now go towards our Lord in prayer of intercession. This Sunday is perhaps a little different than what we would typically pray for in this prayer as there was a school shooting earlier this week in Nashville at a Presbyterian school with a Presbyterian church involved. I'm a pastor in the same clergy corps as a man who lost his daughter this week. There's been many sobbing tears in my own home, maybe perhaps in your own as well. A solemn reminder of our own suffering in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, I want you to pray quietly to yourselves, and then I will lead us for the families who've lost loved ones, for the covenant school children who now have friends who've gone into glory. It's a solemn day, a day that we would typically have great palm praises in. We are brought low. And so pray for the Dykenhouse family, the Kinney family, the Hill family, the Coons family, the Peak family, and of course, a fellow minister in my own ranks, Pastor Chad Scruggs and his family. For today, he worships the Lord without a daughter beside him. I will leave you just a few moments to pray, and then I will lead us. Our great comforter, we come before you seeing the under, our, our own depravity, our own sickness as a culture and as a society. Oh Lord, our, our hearts, our prayers go out to all who have been impacted by this most recent shooting, a shooting that perhaps comes home to roost a little closer than any shooting before. We pray, O oh Lord, for all the families that I just mentioned, the Dickenhouse family, the Kinney family, the Hill family, Coons family, the Peak family, Pastor Scruggs and his family. We pray, O oh Lord, that your comforting spirit would condescend upon all of them this morning, that as they come to worship you, that an extra portion of your Holy Spirit would be with them, Oh, Lord, I could not imagine such a circumstance. And, and so we lift up all of them to you. We lift up, oh, Lord, the children who have been harmed, traumatized by such unthinkable events. We pray that in the midst of this great trial before this great church, that instead of shaking the faith, O oh Lord, that you would use your Son to solidify the faith, that even in great tragedy, O oh Lord, that you remind your church that we come and gather to sing. We pray, O oh Lord, for peace. We pray, O oh Lord, that 
in the midst of our own cultural decline within our own country, that such an event, as devastating and as despicable as it might be, that your church might still today declare your glory. Stand confidently on the truth that you've given to us in the Scriptures. We pray, O Lord, for peace, even when there is no peace. And we pray, O Lord, that you would reestablish our hope in Christ, not only at our congregation, but also at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Nashville. We pray, O Lord, for our denomination who has been reckoning with such information over the past few days. And we pray, O Lord, that as we gather, even in a few months, as an assembly together, that we would not forget the events that transpired this week. Be with all of those who are in elected office as they continue in the mud debating how to best resolve this. But we know, O Lord, the answer, that in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is true hope and salvation. Heal our country, O Lord, by your blood. We also, O Lord, pray for various ministries throughout our world. We think of ITEM, International Theological Education Ministry, that works to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. We heard a report from this ministry yesterday at Presbyterian and the, the difficulty of ministering in India and that as men are raised up as missionaries to go back to their own country, they also experience the same threats that we perhaps experienced this week. They experienced death quickly. And so we pray, O Lord, for this ministry as they continue to raise up ministers that are faithful to your word, that you would continue to instill within boldness, boldness to hold fast, boldness to preach and witness to Christ, even in a culture and society that rejects Christ. We also pray, O Lord, for the lost in our own country, for we are not immune to it. Particularly, and as difficult as it may be, even this morning, we lift up the LGBTQ community. We pray, O Lord, that you would soften their hearts to the gospel, that you would reveal to them their sins against you, their sins of pride, their sins of sexual rebellion. We pray, O Lord, for this community that in the midst of the many issues that those within this community deal with, whether it be suicide or other depression, that you would make known to them that there is true hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. That the answer isn't suicide or the death of many, but true hope in the death of the Son. We pray, O oh Lord, for this community. We pray that by your gospel, many within this community would turn their backs on this identity and to Christ himself. We pray also, O Lord, for our own ministries here. We think of our men's ministry. We pray that you would continue to bolster our men to be leaders in our homes, to be leaders in our church. We pray that as they gather for monthly meals, that you would bless these meals, that as we grow closer to one another, that we would also grow closer to you. We pray for those, O Lord, who are ailing among us. Though many have returned, we think of Joanne, and we're delighted by her return among us. We continue to pray for her healing. 
we lift up the Belmonte family as Pete mourns the death of his father. We pray that you extend an extra portion of your spirit to them. Give them the hope of Christ. Remind them that you are their surety. And, O oh Lord, be with our congregation as a whole as we mourn with covenant prayers with the Belmontes. Remind us that even in sorrow, Christians join and sing. We pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. Last week we heard about the working out of our salvation in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ through us. And this week, quite poignantly, Paul decides to give us examples of people in his own life who have risen to the call of working out their salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so at the tail end, we have perhaps an unusual text in that Paul announces to the congregation of Philippi, as he sends this letter to Epaphroditus, he is sending some back to the church. The church is in need for something to glue them back together well. And what better way than to send replicas of the Lord Jesus Christ himself back to the congregation to serve the congregation, to unify the congregation, to bolden and strengthen the congregation. That is what Philippians 2, 19, 19 through 30 is about. Replicas of the Lord Jesus Christ, mentors, role models found within the congregation that show those fellow believers great examples of how to live Christ even in a sinful world. Stand with me as we hear the reading of God's Word found in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 through the end of the chapter. <clears throat> I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him soon, as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier, and your messenger and your minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, I am more eager to send him. Therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious." So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. 
Here ends our epistle lesson, and this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I'm reminded as Paul talks about his own son in the faith that most young boys want to be just like their dad. Young boys want to be just like your dad. My dad, in my most formative years of my own life, uh, was a truck driver for a linen company. And as I aged, he started to move up the ranks at this linen factory. Uh, He moved from truck driver to overseeing the truck drivers uh, to finally his last position there being that of the man that would be representative for all the special clients in Chicago. He was the person that would represent the company to the people. I wanted to be just like my dad. But it was hard for a young elementary school boy to fathom such a job as his, a linen factory worker. But my dad had a side job, and it was a favored side job of mine. On the weekends, he would take up a local junkyard inspector. He would go in weekly. He would tend the counters. He would help people find the parts he need, and I could fathom that as a young boy. And I could fathom that probably more than any young boy because my mom thought it would be great if my dad would take me to the junkyard every week with him. I had a great childhood. As week in and week out through my elementary experience, I was a junkyard boy. I would go and learn the inner workings of that junkyard. I would shoot BB guns. I would run from ferocious dogs that were supposed to be on my side. I would operate heavy machinery that my dad would, for some reason, put me in charge of as he was under the machinery that I, myself, managed. When he said, do not touch that lever, (laughs) there were devastating implications if I did. I loved the junkyard. I had my own nook in the rafters where I would go to go to put all my collections. I'd go splunking in the junkyard in the midst of all those totaled vehicles and come away with all sorts of treasures and concoctions. After every week, whether it was rain, snow, or shine, my dad would take me home, and on the way, we would get McDonald's together, and he would give me my pay for the week, 5 or $10. I didn't help him much, probably more of a disaster than a help as Often, I was tempted to use that BB gun on windows that people would like to buy. But my dad, I wanted to be just like him. I'd go home, wash the grease off my face and hands, take an afternoon nap as he did. I wanted to be just like my dad. He was a role model in those formative young years. He was an example. Paul understood that little boys, men and women, need proper mentors proper role models in order to help them progress in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Without good mentors or role models, a church can struggle to carry the gospel into the next generation. As we see within the own text in the church of Philippi, as Epaphroditus leaves to go serve Paul, as Timothy and Paul leave and go towards Rome, there is a power vacuum within the church. The church lacks good mentors good role models. And because of it, there becomes a mess that wells within the congregation because when there is a lack of mentorship, when there's a lack of role model in the church, there will be someone to fill that void. Whether good or bad, Yodia and Syntyche filled that void. They were the role models. And by their model, they led division within 
the congregation. In the absence of Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus, the congregation was out to play. Favorite statement, as your pastor is away, the congregation is out to play. As your pastor is away, those pesky ruling elders are out to play. Sometimes the church finds difficulty when their role models depart from them. In the previous passage, we see the ultimate role model. Who is that? It's the Sunday school answer. Jesus. He is the ultimate role model for the church. We want to, when we grow up, we all want to be like Jesus. It's a pretty high and admirable goal. Maybe as a young boy or girl, it seems obtainable in this life. It's so appealing. I can be just like Jesus. But as you perhaps age a little, as you mature, you see that it is actually much more difficult to be like Jesus than you thought when you were younger. Your sins come beckoning at the door of your own heart, and you sometimes open the door again. And so Paul, I think, by his wisdom, understanding almost the impossible height of attaining a Christ-likeness and its perfection, he gives us tangible examples. Okay, Christ is the bar. When you all grow up, you want to be like Christ. Even the oldest among us still say that to their youngest. When I grow up, I want to be like Christ. But Paul gives us replicas of Christ. Men of the church who look like Christ that offer the church an attainable reality of how it li- to live like Christ even in our own day. Fast forward to today, though, as we think about that. We have the similar problem. A church without good infrastructure as it relates to role models and mentors is a church that struggles. We all want to be like dad. We all want to be like the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But when we have a vacuum of leadership, maybe those who rise among us, instead of pointing us to Christ, can point us away from Christ. Every church struggles with raising up the next generation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today we are going to look at three people, three replicas of how we can be good role models within the church, but also mentors to those who are, young, are under us. One commentator says, our text teaches that God has embed into our experience living, breathing replicas of Jesus, men and women whose heart instinct, instincts are growing by grace so that we might sense the heartbeat of Christ in one another as we look to Christ together. So because we struggle to be like Christ, because the goal seems almost unattainable in this life, we need mentors to show us what it looks like to be like Christ. We need mentors to show us what it looks like to be like Christ. We'll look at three people. The first character in this text, as you look down with me, shows us the character of some of our mentors. We need mentors who are submissive. This is Paul himself, he might be the low-key mentor, the low-key role model within this passage. In a a passage about Timothy and Epaphroditus, Paul might be the one you might overlook. But Paul, in this passage, we see his submissiveness. We see his hope and where that hope is grounded in, in verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus Christ to send Timothy soon. Verse 23, I hope, therefore to send him as, just as soon as I see how it will go for me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself 
will come also. We see the mentor, the role model of the great apostle himself, the submissive apostle. Where does, what does Paul hope for? Paul hopes that he would send his, his own son, Timothy, Epaphroditus, back to the church. He has heard the rumblings of minor division, and he wants to remedy them. And so he has hopes. He has hopes for the church to send them the reinforcements that they need. They have heard the bad news concerning the ministry of Paul, Philippians have. They know that he is in bondage, that maybe he'd die. They have heard the stories of Epaphroditus, a man whom they had sent to Paul. At the writing of this letter, the Philippians think that Epaphroditus is as good as dead. Their own division within, this is a church that is hurting. Their apostle, their church planter, might be dead soon. One of their own, one that who might even be an overseer, a pastor within their church, might die in service to the one that they had sent to serve. They're, they're facing adversity and difficulty. So Paul has hopes. He has hopes that he could help mend that adversity, the restless nature. And so Paul hopes that he can send reinforcements. Sometimes we need reinforcements. But notice what his hope is grounded in. It's not grounded in Paul. It's grounded in God himself. Verse 24, as I read just that first introductory sentence of it, the first part, and I trust in the Lord. I trust that the Lord will bring these hopes to pass, and I trust even more in the Lord that he will even bring me to be before you again. The old great saying, Lord willing, Lord willing, I will be with you soon. It's one of my favorite phrases from older saints. I still have yet to learn it, but often when I'm talking with you, maybe you just say it to me because I'm your pastor, I don't know, but you say, Lord willing, I'll be there on Sunday. I, I still need to learn to say Lord willing. It's not in my own vocabulary. It's not something that naturally pours from my heart. But when we say Lord willing, what does it mean? It means that if the Lord allows me, I will come. If I am not there, it is because he has prohibited me, whether that be by death, sickness, flat tires, crazy storms, whatever it may be, Lord willing, I will be with you. That, that phrase draws up from Philippians chapter 16 when it says, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. Lord willing. There's a submissive nature, even in regards to our plans. If I were to write Philippians 16, I would say, the heart of Scott plans his way, and Scott establishes his steps. That's how I would write that verse. As a reminder to me, a type A personality that likes to have all his ducks in a row, that likes to plan profusely, that no matter how much I plan, that the Lord is the one who will establish my steps. It reminds me that I need to be like my, the saints before me, Lord willing. I must be a submissive man, submissive to the Lord as he guides my way. Why? Well, I think it's revealed quite clearly in Paul's writing that it is because the Lord is sovereign. He is the sovereign over all of our plans. He is the one that orchestrates all of 
creation. We sometimes overlook the sovereign. We, 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 when we think of the word sovereign, we think big. We only think big. But in, in the biblical word and throughout the language and history, we see that sovereign is connected very intimately to kingliness. The sovereign over our land. The one that has complete control and authority over us as our king. He is the sovereign. He is the king over all the earth. He is the one that directs the earth. We sometimes forget how powerful kings can be because we choose our own leader so often. We forget the power and authority of a true sovereign over a nation. That it is by the work of a sovereign that he chooses a tax rate. He's the one that chooses when we go to war, thinking of an earthly king. He is the one that chooses when we are in times of peace. A king, just 500 years ago, chose the religion of the land. A king had unilateral authority over the affairs, and the king could bless you or curse you in a moment's notice. He could wipe your business from the face of the earth. You think of the Old Testament stories of vineyards being taken by the Israelite king unlawfully. An entire man's livelihood. And not only that, legacy. Taken by a king in the snap of the fingers. His father's father planted that vineyard. And by the king's authority, it is gone in a moment. I'm reminded of King Francis I. He was the king of France during the Reformation era, just to give you the gravity. At the beginning of the Reformation, he was somewhat tolerant to the Reformation. In the University of Paris that John Calvin would go under tutelage there, uh, it was taught in classes and debated regularly the Protestant Reformation. But one day, Luther's theology got a little too intense as placards throughout all of Paris and throughout all of the cities of France condemned the Roman Mass. The king, though sympathetic to the Protestant Reformation, at that moment turned his heart completely against it. You think of the many Huguenots, the great French reformers who would lay down their lives for the Reformation there. Calvin himself and many with him in the University of Paris would flee the university to head to safer pastures just on the moment's notice. A king once sympathetic to reformation within the church turns his heart quickly and the rest of his rule seeks to kill those whom he once was sympathetic with. Calvin's plans were hopeful. He hoped that reformation would come. He planned for reformation to come in France, and yet the Lord established his way elsewhere. You know this to be the case because in Calvin's Institutes, there is a preface, and in that preface, who does he address his institutes for? Not for Scott Edberg, not even first to the church, but to King Francis I pleading even from Geneva to reconsider his approach towards the Reformation. A king has mighty power. How much greater is the monarch, the great monarch, the king of kings over all of the earth? 
It is by His great sovereign will, by His great sovereign work, that all comes to pass. And thus, we are His subjects. And the only correct posture, as Paul points out here, is to trust His work. Even in the midst of sadness and difficulty, we just prayed for this just a moment ago, even in the midst of extreme difficulty, of heartache, reminding ourselves that we are submissive to Him. Think of what that communicates to the youngest among us, Christians who are submissive to their Lord. We need a church full of submissive people, submissive to the God that makes His steps sure, reminding even their youngest that as they plan to go off to college, trade school, or whatever, even as they plan that the Lord is the one who establishes their ways. How much more comforting would it be for our youngest among us if instead of while, they, while our youngest worry and tarry, what is the Lord called for me to do particularly, if our church came alongside them, comforting them and reminding them that follow the Lord just generally. He will establish your ways. Make plans, sure, but He will establish your way. It is a great encouragement when we have mentors that are submissive to the Lord. Because... As we face it, our churches, our world are full of prideful people. How much greater when the church comes alongside one another, recognizing the importance of submission. Because we struggle to be like Christ, we need mentors to show us what it looks like to grow in Christ. We have the first mentor, Paul, who teaches us submissiveness. Our second S today is we also need selfless mentors. We need submissive mentors and selfless mentors. We see the selfless mentor in our second character, in Timothy, verse 20. For I have no one like him who will, genuinely, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, probably talking about the women in the church that are struggling and fighting. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go for me. The second character that we get in this text is Timothy himself. Who is Timothy? We know Paul. We know Timothy. We're going to get to the mysterious Epaphroditus later. But Timothy is a son of Paul. Not physically, but spiritually. He is his closest companion. Timothy to Paul are kindred spirits. They have the same goals. They have the same demeanor. They have the same hopes, aspirations. They are united. They are kindred spirits, like Jonathan and David in the Old Testament. Do you have any kindred spirits in your life, someone that you identify so well with? In Tuscumbia, I had a kindred spirit a friend, even on my first time meeting him, it was when we were interviewing, they wined and dined us so well. And we were eating with a family, and we were just getting to know the families. And to be a kindred spirit to me is difficult. I am a man of very interesting interests. But as we sat there, we learned that we liked the TV, same TV shows. We liked The Office, Parks and Rec, Community. That's common. But as we sat, I also learned that he enjoyed playing strategic board games, some board games that lasted not merely one day, but multiple. 
hard to find people like that. But as we were signing out, he took out a pen from his pocket, and lo and behold, it was a fountain pen. And I said, by golly, the Lord is calling me to this church. We are kindred spirits. Even from those first moments, I know that we would have the same aspirations, the same love for the church that he would and I would serve in. He would become an elder later that year within the church, ordained. We would serve alongside each other for four years. We didn't always think the same things, but we had the same hopes, desires for the congregation. We, we were on the same page. We loved First Pres to Scumbia. We wanted the best for the congregation. We wanted to make the community of the church the central community of the people's lives in the church. We were kindred spirits. Timothy is a kindred spirit to Paul. And that is why Paul can confidently say, I have no one like him who will generally be concerned for your welfare. They are kindred spirits. Paul himself loves this congregation because he had planted this congregation. And Paul himself knows that Timothy will love this congregation because Paul himself loved this congregation well. Paul, or Timothy, I should say, would selflessly then go to serve this congregation. It is no small feat for Timothy to do what he did, to leave Paul's side, to leave a kindred spirit. It's not easy to leave your kindred spirits. You don't know if you'll ever see them again. Paul is on trial. For Timothy to leave, it might be a final goodbye, even as Paul is hopeful. But notice even the length that Timothy would have to travel from Rome. 350 miles by sea and land. It's not an easy journey. Not an easy journey at all. 350 miles is about the distance from here to Discumbia. And, you know, a car made it easy. Uh, a packing pod made it easy to get up and move. I don't know if my family could survive a multi-week journey from the swampy lands to this part of the country, it would have been a struggle for us to make such a journey. And it was a struggle for anyone to make such a journey at this time. It was weeks, maybe even months, depending on the weather. It was not easy. It would take a selfless man who actually loved the congregation. If I were in Timothy's shoes, I perhaps would say, the weather just doesn't seem right for me to leave you, Paul. I would be tempted to look out for my own self-interests. Paul, it's just so much easier to stay than to go. But no, Timothy is a selfless servant. Being kindred spirits with Paul, sharing the same concern for the congregation that Paul had planted. And in that selflessness, he chooses to travel through waking waters across the land to be with that church. It's the selfless nature. But I want you to know also about the man of Timothy himself. This didn't come naturally to Timothy. If you read Paul as he talks to Timothy, whether it be through the epistles, first and second Timothy, or, or elsewhere throughout the New Testament, Timothy wasn't naturally a selfless person. He was an anxious person. He was a person that Paul would say, Timothy, take a little wine to your stomach and settle down a bit. There is a tight knot in your stomach. We need to loosen it. Relax a little. When, 
when Timothy would be sent that letter of 2 Corinthians back to Corinth after they had received the first letter poorly. In my candidating sermon, I referenced that just a moment. Paul would warn the Corinthians, do not take it out on the messenger. Do not take it out on Timothy. He really can't handle it at this point. He was an insecure minister. I can empathize with Timmy, Timothy in many regards. Don't take your frustrations out on him. Be light on him. It is me who you should struggle with. 1 Corinthians was a harsh letter. I know it. 2 Corinthians will hopefully resolve some of that. But then even Timothy is delayed to come back to Paul because of the difficulty. Timothy wasn't naturally selfless. He was anxious. So how much greater is it than when Paul says these things about Timothy? But you know Timothy's proven worth. The anxious, insecure minister. The man you know as well as I. You know his proven worth. Even despite all his insecurity, he is a selfless man that will serve you. Overlooking even some of his traits, his weaknesses, he has proven his worth. He will be a selfless man among you, and you need a selfless role model. A church that has been struggling with the difficulty here needs a selfless role model, a model that will show the kindred spirit of both Timothy and Paul and their relationship, communicating that to the congregation itself, to solve their current division and to unite them in the preached word. We, we need this. It is a good reminder of our selfless nature as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator says that this is a great reminder that it's not pastor so-and-so's church. It's not your ruling elder's church. It's not your church. Every pastor, every elder, every leader of any sort in the ministry must be on guard lest they forget Paul here in calling us to remember the selfless nature of ministry. That commentator says quite perfectly, those, as a reminder to me and to my elders alongside me, those whom you lead do not serve you. They serve with you to advance the gospel of Christ. It's a great reminder. That is the ministry of the, that is the selfless example that must be. We need selfless role models, not looking out for our own interests, but the interests of others. We have one more character, and I'm running short, and he's the one I want to spend intimate time with. The last mentor, the last role model that Paul gives us here is that of a sacrificial one. That is in the man of Epaphroditus. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. Going down, indeed he was ill, near death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also. We see in the last place here, the last example is that of a sacrificial model, a role model that is willing to sacrifice for the church. Who was Epaphroditus? We name our children Paul. We have some Pauls in the congregation. We name our children Timothy. But do we name our children Epaphroditus? No. You would probably point quickly. You don't want him to have weird names like Pappy and such. You'd get ridiculed. But Epaphroditus is an undervalued character model within this story. 
He is the sacrificial example. He is not a mere, as we have already discussed, a submissive and selfless. He is a sacrificial model. And it is important to notice his sacrificial model as it relates to the past passages. A sacrificial model, a sacrificial mentor is one that intimately identifies with the sacrificial Christ. But who was Epaphroditus? A name that you might have to even practice saying. He was a man from this congregation, from Philippi, reared in the congregation, a loved child of the congregation, a man who would grow up and who would be one of the overseers that Paul references in chapter 1 of Philippians as he greets the church. Greetings to the overseers of whom I have sent this letter with. Epaphroditus is a leader of the church, a pastor, a preacher of the church, sent by great expense to the congregation to serve Paul. You can see the cause of him leaving and the difficulty it has caused on the congregation. The minister turned missionary, sent out to serve Paul in his need. But we see the toll of that call. The toll of that call is that as he traveled and served Paul, he became ill. So ill, the gravity of this illness is so ill that it has reached back to the church of Philippi, and the church of Philippi assumes the worst. Perhaps by the time they got this word, Epaphroditus himself might already be dead their beloved minister turned missionary to Paul, might have died in service to Paul. I'm sure they didn't imagine that as they sent Epaphroditus out that that might be the last time they ever see Epaphroditus. They expected him to return with cheerful news of Paul, hopefully, but to, for him to return and to continue to serve. And so his illness is a devastating news to the congregation of Philippi. We undervalue how travel can take a toll on a human being, but it does, whether it be just a, a humble move from North Alabama here. Uh, I'm reminded of, of Machen, the great reformer of Presbyterianism in the early mid-20th century. Machen was one of the founders of Westminster Theological Seminary and the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, our sister congregation in Nay Park. But Machen would die at the age of 55. He was not overtly a sickly man, but his stress would sometimes make him fall ill. But Machen decided in the early turn of the century here, at the ripe age of 55, to keep a speaking engagement in North Dakota. And it was unfortunate that he decided to keep this speaking arrangement in the month of December in the midst of frigid cold weather in North Dakota. And it was in his travels to North Dakota, and it was in that time there that he would develop pneumonia. And he was doing ministry there. On December 25th, he would go into the hospital to be cared for pneumonia. And then shortly thereafter, he would die on New Year's Day with pneumonia. It was shocking. Shocking to the staff of Westminster Theological Seminary to those in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. One month prior, the great Machen continued his ministry at the great seminary, great church, and now he's gone. You go to Machen's gravestone, it is very humble and meek. It calls us to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
but even travel can be a deathly affair. In the 20th century, as Machen himself would succumb to pneumonia. We don't know the sickness of Epaphroditus. We know it was bad. And we know that the church didn't know if he would ever return. But we also see why Paul then sends him back. He sends the sacrificial minister back to provide them stability and hope. The minister that you sent to serve me, who you thought dead, is alive. And he is alive to serve you. Notice how Paul talks about Epaphroditus. He is my brother, my fellow worker, my soldier. He even relates his character to the congregation. He is your messenger. He is your minister to my need. He's your champion, your hero that I send back to you. Think of the joyous triumph as this congregation would receive their sacrificial minister back to serve them. Reminded of William Shakespeare's great words, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. As the English would go to war with France in that great work by him, the king would come alongside. We few, we happy few. For he today that sheds his blood sheds it with me. That is the reception. That is how Paul sends Epaphroditus out and how he would be received back in the congregation. We, as Christians, need sacrificial mentors, sacrificial role models, models that can lead us and the next generation to live out Christ here and now. The Sunday, we must remember our little ones. We must prepare them to live in a world that might not be as friendly as we grew up in. We must be mentors to little ones who we have learned throughout this week may not have another day to live. The church needs replicas of Christ so that even if our little ones depart, we know where they are. We need submissive mentors, selfless mentors, sacrificial mentors, men and women, fathers and mothers, even children, who will model Christ so that we might know him better and more fully. May we have men and women in our congregation that spur even the youngest among us to love Christ all the more. Is it a lawfully goal to be Christ? Yes. Then may we be emblems of Christ to show how to live as Christ on this earth. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, and even in the midst of difficulty, we are reminded of our great calling in the Lord Jesus Christ. May we, O oh Lord, be mentors and role models for all within our congregation, but also throughout society itself. We pray for all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.